0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Murrow and welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. This week I have... My friend Quint Studer on the line. Quint is the founder of Pensacola's Studer Community Institute, a nonprofit organization focused on improving the community's quality of life and moving Escambia and Santa Rosa counties forward. He is a businessman, a visionary, and an entrepreneur, and a mentor to many, including myself. He has written a new book called Building a Vibrant Community, how Citizen Powered Change is Reshaping America, and he agreed to come on the podcast and give us some insights and chat a little bit about the book. Quint, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. And By the way, I'm a big follower of Strong Towns. So is, I think, everybody in Pensacola, Florida almost now. <laughs> it's amazing how many times at city council meetings or county commission meetings, something that was on your Strong Towns website is um related to or brought up as a reference for making good decisions.
0: Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. And we feel the love from Pensacola because I I see our stuff in the paper there a lot. It's clear that it's being shared. And I thank you for that. I had a great opportunity to speak at Civicon last year. And boy, that was was one of the highlights of my 2017. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Let's talk about the book. I want to give you a chance right at the top to talk about the title "Building a Vibrant Community" what, that word means a, different things to different people. I'd like to hear from you what it means to have a vibrant community.
1: I think it's a place, if you look at it, where talent wants to stay in town, talent that left wants to come back, and some new talent wants to come. And I know that might not be the normal explanation of vibrant. And normally, when somebody says what's a vibrant community, I'm going to give the old. Well, it's a place that people like to, you know, play, learn earn, and work. But why? And the why, what we found out is, you know, the biggest thing facing small and mid-sized cities today is talent. And when we did a poll like 2005, of course, people wanted certain things, you know, hey, we need more jobs, or we'd like access here where we are to water, or things like that. The thing that sort of cut through it was, we're just losing too much talent. And so when you look at what do young people want They want what they call vibrancy. What's vibrancy? It's, hey, I can work downtown or I can work in the community. I can play in the community. I can live down in the community. So um, I think vibrant is just a place where talent wants to be. And ironically, what else wants to be is uh, people that like to maybe park their car and walk a little bit. So I think vibrancy is a place where people want to stay. No matter what age you are, people want to stay or they want to move there.
0: You've written a number of books and your background in leadership. One of the books of yours that I've got is Results at Last. It's a great book about making change and, I guess, improvement part of the way you operate things. I want you to talk about leadership and how you go about getting past that thing that we always struggle with in communities, which is we can't do this. Uh, maybe blaming other people, making excuses for why you can't get to the next level. There's a certain leadership component to getting unstuck. What is that? How do you get started down that path?
1: Again, I've written a number of books. And when I got a call from a publicist who's done work with me on books, Dottie DeHart, out of North Carolina, she said, "You yeah, know, I think you have another book in I thought it was like a summary of all the columns I write every Sunday. I write a column on leadership, and I'm thinking, "Well, okay, that'll be easy. We'll just pull all these things together." And she goes, "No, no, no. I think you should write a book on how to build a a vibrant community." I'm not sure she called it that at the time, but a book on what what I've learned in this process here in Pensacola. And I said, "Oh, there's lots of books on that." And she said, "Yeah, but you do a lot more how to." You know, my books in the past aren't just be a good leader, it's how to be a good leader. So I think when you look at a couple chapters in the book that I think have resonated with people, one of them is I think in cities, we get too hung up on consensus versus consent. And I think that's where we run into trouble. We want everyone to be happy. So we end up creating a project that sort of makes everyone a little happy and a little unhappy, but it's not the right project or it's not the right location. I have a lot of history in Wisconsin, and you know, for years, there's Janesville and Beloit. They're about 15 miles apart, and to please everybody, they put stuff in the middle of them. But the problem is no one wanted to go to the middle. So I, I think that figuring out how to get consent, which means you're going to get the majority make a decision, then you move forward. Now, the challenge we had personally here is some of our people that didn't get their way didn't consent. Instead, they wanted to fight it and fight it and fight it. But the good news is we still went forward. So I think in change, one of the things is before you walk into it to realize you're probably not going to have consensus, but you've got to go for consent. So going back to the original question, John Cotter and his um, work on why cultural transformations fail. And though it sounds like a heady word, what we're really trying to do in cities is transform them. And he says, the number one thing you have to have is a burning platform. You have to find the right burning platform and change. Our burning platform wasn't, let's get rid of toxic soil downtown, or let's make a two-way, a one-way street into a two-way street. Our burning platform was, we got to keep our talent here. We have too much talent leaving. That resonated. Chuck, I was recently out in Putman County below Jacksonville talking to their community, and if you're not careful, you get into a, a, a fight between where well, you're spending too much money on downtown and not enough money here. And I said, for us, if our research would have said young people want to be to have corn out in the country, I would have said, let's go plant some corn out in the country. What it showed was our talent wanted to have a place to go downtown to enjoy themselves. So downtown revitalization. So it's that burning platform. And then the second thing is, do you get a critical mass? And I think sometimes, Chuck, the people that want to change are so close to it. They think people are as close to it as they do. It takes a long time to create a burning platform. So, for example, here, as you know, when you were here, we're focusing on early brain development of children. We spent one year talking about how our kids aren't ready for kindergarten. And getting that critical mass is why we did Civicon. We just believe that we need to bring outside people so people could learn. And Chuck, you changed the conversation. I mean, we're, we're like maroniized or something <laughs> like that. Um, I, I mean, honest to gosh, we. but you have to educate people in the communities because they might not see it. So nobody, at least I believe most people now, when they see a vacant lot, see an opportunity. They see, why are we building new infrastructure? We can use what we have. So it's getting that critical mass. And That's the second part of of change. And the third change is having a little success. And that's why I'm a big believer in one building at a time, one block at a time, one intersection at a time. And to close off, and this is also in my book on change, you normally have people that go into four quadrants of change, Chuck. And I've done a lot of research on this over the years. You have probably 25% of the people, they're fourth. They're just these people that wake up positive, They're for it. They're excited about it. Those are the ones that if you're not careful, you think everyone is like them because they're the ones that get there at front. The second part is I sort of like it, but I need to learn more. You know, tell me more, explain this to me, um, show me some data. The third group is equal, probably 25%. I'm likely against this. Now you might win me over, but it's going to take some time and effort. And the fourth group is, I'm absolutely against it. You know, um, we did some polling here in Pensacola, and they said that 30 percent of the people were going to be against whatever we said. And I used to tell the joke that if God came to Pensacola and said, "I'm here to put heaven," somebody would complain because it was a gated community.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: I think what happens is we get too hung up working on that lower two quadrants. You work on the first two quadrants, you get a little bit of that third quadrant. And I write a lot about that in my book, because I think that's what's missed in this revitalization. You know, we have the right mind revitalization, but it's not that. It's more sophisticated, and you have to grab the heart as much as the mind.
0: This is a part of your book that really struck me, and I'm actually on page 42 in my copy. It talks about this fourth group, and you actually said, and I'm going to quote you here, don't spend precious time and energy worrying about these people. This is that fourth quarter you talk about. Be respectful. Be respectful. But don't be fooled into thinking that more information or more inclusion will make a difference. That does seem to run counter to the way that a lot of governments approach things and a lot of city changemakers approach things, which is, you know, let's have tons of outreach to these people who are against projects. Let's let's sit down and, and go through it with them a hundred times. There's something pragmatic about what you're proposing here. How do you balance that with kind of a natural inclination of many community builders to want to please everybody, I guess, is maybe the way to put it.
1: I think I almost, when I've spoken in cities now, give them permission not to do that because the natural tendency is we have to do that. Now, I'm not saying you don't give them information, but you don't go overboard. You know, one of the biggest mistakes people make in any business or community is taking the naysayer or the person against it and thinking if I put them on the committee, That'll make a difference. I've seen companies do this all the time. They take somebody who's anti what they're trying to do. Think if they put him on the committee, it'll win them over. And all he does is bring the cancer into the organization, even deeper. So I think you have to give people permission. You know, hey, we're not going to agree. I'm going to give the information. But you got to work with the people you, you can move. And that's the person that, you know, can you explain this to me on one of our projects here? I don't like to tear down old buildings, but some buildings just need to be torn down. And, you know, we tore down an old um, newspaper building that was in pretty bad shape. But what we put up in its place is going to pay $800,000 in property tax versus the $70,000 and not require a new road, a new pipe or a new pole. Well, oh, you get them. Here's my lesson. I never had done this before. So I called this real negative guy. Charlie was his name. I said, Charlie, who can I bring in here to help you understand this? And he said, Ray Gindros, because Ray Gindros had been here for a lecture at IHMC, which is a think tank here in town with robotics. So I brought Ray in and I paid a lot of money to bring Ray in. He did these you know, things all over the community on whiteboards and all this and rolled it out. And then the people who were against it were still against it. They said, well, that's because you paid for him to be here. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So I think you have to get people permission to say, hey, we can't please everybody, but we're moving forward. And, and it's also hard in a community because people sometimes are afraid to, to speak out, you know, and that's the other thing. You know, silence is support. i have had people come up to me and say, you know gee, we were eating dinner the other night and this guy was really being real negative about what you're trying to do. And I said, well, well, what'd you say? And he said, well, I didn't want a room dinner. And I said, well, gee, it'd be nice if you'd say something. See, you gotta get the community a little more bolder about what they want. And I think they'll do it if in their hearts they know it's the right thing to do for the long-term health of the community.
0: Right. I've struggled here in my town. I see a lot of the leadership coalescing around, and you get this a little bit too, because you've got the oil well settlement money that is kind of burning a hole in some of your leadership's pockets. They're coalescing around some big projects. And the thing is, is like, I like the projects. My wife said, wouldn't it be great to have a river walk? That's one of the things that is coming up. And I'm like, yeah, I would, it would be fantastic. It would also be really fantastic to be able to, you know, just walk across the street, which is really dangerous to do today. I feel like I walk this fine line sometimes between being the, uh, the person who's trying to be the adult in the room, you know, like let's crawl before we try to run and the person who's maybe a little bit negative on the big plan being brought down from on high. What advice would you give to me? Cause I think a lot of strong towns, people find themselves in the same way too. They, they want to get on board and support big things, but yet, you know, sometimes the big thing is the, is the wrong thing.
1: I love Joe Minnicozzi, and I know he's a good friend of yours who says, show me the math. Show me the math. So, for example, I like river walks, too, and I would support a river walk like heck if you showed me that by doing the river walk, you would create a whole bunch of tax paying development all around it that would more than pay for the river walk. So, for example... I would not have written this book, Chuck, if we hadn't had a twenty-five point nine percent increase in our assessed property value within the same defined limits, with not counting a hundred million dollars worth of investments that's going on right now. Otherwise, it's just another nice story, a lot of nice anecdotal stories, but no math. So I think you have to at times do some public projects, no doubt. But it has to be something that truly you can show the math. However, I also think, you know, what you do, Chuck, is equivalent to driving a nitroglycerin truck. I mean, you're trying to drive real carefully down the street here, but you don't want to get too many bumps. I think sometimes we miss all the little things we can do while the big things are, are sort of out there percolating in the process. So, for example, you're, you're some of your examples, like when you've spoken or other people have spoken, we had Dr. Michael Pride, who's a professor at University of New Mexico, come in town. and she's wanted to walk our neighborhoods and she pointed out that our lanes are eleven and a half feet wide, and the average city lane should be ten feet wide, and every inch that it's wider creates speed. And for every mile per hour speed, more people get hurt. This might sound crazy, but when you have four lanes of eleven and a half feet, Plus, on the side, you've almost got a 50-foot crosswalk with no crosswalk that children are getting killed on. Well, see, that you can fix quite quickly by narrowing the street, putting in a bike lane, some things you show. So while in Pensacola, at least, while a big project was unraveling, or, or not unraveling, was actually, in a positive way, was starting to happen, it didn't stop us from buying a you know, using Ray Gindroses from urban design. Hey, you need a great intersection. Didn't stop us by going and picking the intersection and saying, gee, we have two empty lots and two vacant buildings, but we have the right traffic. And what can we do with these buildings? And, you know, you've been here, that's probably now the busiest intersection in town that wins awards all over with 16 different outlets. I think while the big stuff's being talked about, you start doing a lot of little things. And then sometimes you might not need the big thing. Or if the big thing doesn't happen, it's not, oh my gosh, we're we're in trouble now. So I think you have to sort of take both into consideration.
0: I want to ask you about stealing ideas from other communities. You've traveled quite a bit. I travel quite a bit. We see great things that other places are doing. I see a lot of cities that will, you know, bring up the big idea. One of the things here in my hometown is there's some people who want to build a children's museum. I think what happened is they went to some other city, saw a children's museum, had a great day there, came back and said, "We really need one of these here." What's the fine line between learning from what other communities have done successfully and actually, you know, doing the thing that is like the next right thing to do for your place? It's more than just copying. So what's the trick there in your eyes? Well,
1: Ed McMahon brought it up. And again, one of the people at the Urban Land Institute says, if every place looks like every place, why do you need to go at any place if we all look the same? And I think sometimes we get a little too caught up because it works in this community. Let's do it in this community. I think every community has to figure out what is their character and tell their story. We've also done, again, I'm not picking on children museums, however you brought it up. You know, This was a big push here for a while, and we have a little one, but I always ask, is it self-sustainable without government money? That's the key, can we sustain it? And then the second question is, is it sustainable without philanthropy? Because it's easy to build these things, but it's how to sustain them. In my story I tell about, which I think was a bold move, They had raised $17 million to build a museum downtown, a maritime museum that was going to be run by the University of West Florida. And we're in a maritime history place. I mean, they had figured how many ships were sunk, and there was a lot of enthusiasm. So they had $17 million that they could access to build this museum. In the long run, Judy Benz, who was the president of the university at the time, she's since retired, said, I'm not going to, because I don't think we can run it. We can't operationally sustain it. So the question I always ask is, how are we going to sustain these things? It's sort of interesting um, how these things sort of work, because many times they're not sustainable. What I get more excited about when I go to other cities is, what are some businesses we could put in? Well, you know, My wife is, is, you know, the story, we were in Pinehurst, North Carolina, and I was looking for a cup of coffee. I saw these canisters and I thought that has got more coffee than any store I've ever seen. I went in, it was all olive oil. And I'm thinking, where's your coffee? And she says, it's olive oil. Now I'm thinking, where's your coffee? And my wife said, I love the experience here. You know, I love this. So, you know, she brought an olive oil store to Pensacola, Florida. People at first thought she was crazy, but it's not this olive oil you're bringing. it's the experience. And of course, you know, it does very well. And she's added coffee and, all sorts of things that she's added to this little store downtown, which now does $2 million worth of sales a year on the corner. So I think bringing those type of ideas are good, but you have to vet them. And you just can't think because it works in Cincinnati, it's going to work in our community. And you can also start them off as pop-ups. You can start them off, let's try it for three, four months, see how it goes. But I think the big issue here is people take government money or philanthropy money. They build something, and then they can't support it, Chuck, and then they end up in trouble.
0: Chapter 8 is all about getting started. And you say, get started with the downtown. Why downtown? Why is that the epicenter where you start?
1: Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's already got the infrastructure. So if you already got roads, you already got pipes, you already got buildings. And you know we've had so many people, Chuck. Since you've been here, we have maps galore now that shows tax per square foot, tax per building. Also, downtown buildings are easier to retrofit. You know, you you take a new building that's a strip mall; it's pretty hard to retrofit or a big box store. But you know, my wife's God. If you look across the street, you know, all these little stores now were always something else at one time. So I think your infrastructure is already in place. Number two. The research shows that people want a sense of place. I, I really think that America, you know, Friedman and Bloomberg write about this, Gates Foundation writes about it. People want a sense of place. And you, you've talked about lots. And for fifty years, you know, people ran to malls. I lived outside Chicago. I remember when the first mall was put in outside Chicago. It was actually an outdoor one called Oak Brook, followed by Schaumburg. Because people like the weather, sort of like, you know, you're up in Minnesota, sort of like, you know, people want to all of a sudden play baseball outside again up in Minnesota after having an indoor facility. So I think what happened is people sort of went to the mall and was fun or the strip mall, but people miss neighborhoods. So another thing about downtown is it creates that sense of place, that sense of purpose, which I think people like. Number three, there's two types of people that really want to spend a lot of time downtown. It's young people and people that are over the age of 55 where their children aren't home anymore, but they want to be downtown. We just put the first residential, large, residential complex downtown Pensacola for the first time ever, 258 apartments. And the reason we're getting the diversity of who's in there, their studios, one bedroom, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, it's sold out. It's literally sold out. And 60 percent of the people are over the age of 55. Because you know what? They want to be downtown. And then also now that they're downtown, you get the little grocery store, you get the primary care doctor coming downtown. So I think people really are yearning for that sense of of place, that neighborhood, that feeling together. People, when they came to America, didn't say, well, now that I'm here, I'm going to go into the woods, build a log cabin, and I don't want to see anybody. Our whole entire country was built on place, built on neighbors, built on people helping each other. And I think people are yearning for that again. And that's what a downtown does for people.
0: I was really flattered that you spent a whole chapter really on our neighborhood's first approach, the Strong Town's idea of going out and observing where people struggle and, and making small investments. I'd like to give you the critique that I get of that and have you respond to it. The critique that I often get, and you know, this is an approach that says, uh, wow, people are struggling to get across the street here. Let's put in a crosswalk or let's, you know, people are struggling to get from here to here. Let's, let's put in a bike lane or plant some trees and let's do the little things to make the neighborhood better. The pushback that I get is Chuck, our problems are so big. They're they're so monumental. Uh, We need to take big, bold action. We need to be thinking bolder than what you are with this neighborhood's first approach. How would you respond to that criticism?
1: I never think it's an either or an or. I think that's the fight you get into when it's, I would tell people, well, that's great while we're doing the big bulldo, I'd like people not to get killed walking across the street. It's called something's better. My boss went up on the hospitals. I worked at Mark Clement one day because in healthcare, there's no better industry than to rationalize, not doing anything because of perfectionism in healthcare. And I remember our boss, Mark Clement, wanted to do something and we came up with some problems with it. And he said, let me ask you a question. Is it better than what we're doing now? And we said, oh yeah, yeah, it's a lot better. He said, well, let's do better right now. Let's start doing better. And that made a lot of sense to me. And a story I like to say is when I worked at the Baptist hospital here in Pensacola, I was president, people used to cut across the grass to the parking lot and they kept putting up signs. They kept putting up everything they could to keep people from walking on the grass. And one day I said, why don't we just put a sidewalk where everybody's walking? And so I think you need those small wins. And by the way, research would support you, Chuck. John Cotter has probably done more research on change than anybody in the world says you need some success. The Heath brothers, who wrote the best-selling book Switch when change is hard. Said you have to find bright spots. So I will tell you while we were doing some big stuff, we were also taking an old record shop, revitalizing that and putting in a, a little restaurant. We were doing market days where you do um, programming your downtown to get people down there. You know we're spending a lot of time and effort in Jamesville, Wisconsin now. And you know while they were getting ready to take down a parking lot over a, a river and put in the town square, they were still doing a farmer's market. This last weekend, they had a bike race for the first time downtown. So I think we have to get away from this either or, you know, you guys work on your big project. We're going to work on a whole bunch of stuff to make this community better. And so our big project probably came in 2012. Our little project started in 2005.
0: What is the role of government? You've got a whole chapter about this. If I was going to give you a critique on any part of this book, it would be this part here. You have a a successful businessman's approach to government. I agree with you, and I don't take issue with any of your suggestions. I also know that most governments don't operate this way. There's a lot of local governments, especially in cities your size and, and my size, that are an absolute mess. What is the role of government, and how would you say we go about getting it focused on the things that it can do really well.
1: And I think our government here is an absolute mess at times. um, Because one, you have budget issues, you got lobbying issues, you got re-election issues. I learned this by traveling. Uh, When I first got into this, you know, I went to different places. Like, you know, and Asheville is probably where I learned the most. I remember with Pat Whalen, who was sort of the grandfather of the change, Joe Minikosi knows well in Asheville, I asked, Show me the role of government. Because I always saw the role of government as the savior here to this stuff. And he got up and showed how this one outlet was moved like 12 inches and he sat down. It took me about 30 seconds to realize he was telling me, don't count on it. And so I think with government, the thing I like about what we've done here is we've done most of it, particularly down Palafox, which is the big street, without government dollars. And when I go to community, Chuck, and this is a little controversial, maybe I will ask to meet with the wealthier people, just the wealthier people in a small group, there's usually five, six, 10 of them. And I say to them, if you really want to make this happen, you got to get wealth off the sidelines, because if you're not willing to invest in your community, why should somebody outside invest in your community? And I walk them through the return on investment is keeping children and grandchildren here or getting them back. And it resonates with people. So I think with government, I think government's number one goal is safety. And I think you've got to have the government take safety very seriously, police, lighting, traffic, and that. I think that's the major impact. I think second of all, They can certainly support you in things like in Jamesville, Wisconsin. It was vital for them to take one-way streets down to two-way streets. That the government needed to do that. Everybody's going to have different governments. So I'm very sensitive to not putting all your eggs in the government basket. It just doesn't work. So I sort of downplay I I try to get people to say, if you really want to sustain it, sustain it with private dollars.
0: Every city Traditionally has had some benefactor. I, you know, I know here we have Gregory Park, and Gregory Park was named after someone. You know, with the railroad, I actually don't know the full story, but it was like the the railroad investor's wife or something like that. Her maiden name was Gregory. You know, there's a sign in the park for commemorating a couple of people that made significant investments in abutments and other things that make the park what it is, and the fountain. How essential has That side of, if we want to use the word today, philanthropy, but I think in the olden days, maybe we just called them community benefactors. How important was that? And what's happened? Is that gone today? In my town, a lot of the wealthy people now live out on the lake and have their own big compounds and don't really interact much with the city.
1: When I write this next edition of this book, I would add a chapter on what you're talking about. In the old days, there were four, really four key elements that built a community. They were usually, and some of them were driven by money, and some of them were driven by influence. So almost everybody had a locally owned media. Today, most media is no longer locally owned. And that publisher, that editor, that newspaper used to be a big driving force on change. Well, today, in many, many cities, Either the paper's gone away or it's owned by a national company that really isn't. The local person might be there three years and gone. They're not driving it. We had locally owned health care. Most healthcare now is no longer locally owned. We had locally owned businesses. Many businesses are no longer locally owned. So you take these locally owned. So, for example, in Janesville, Wisconsin, where I spent a lot of years, Parker Penn was there. Now, not only did you have Parker Penn, but the Parker family you had. So you had the wealth of the Parker family there. But you also had the intellectual capital of the executives that sat on those those places. So in many, many organizations today, the locally owned media, the locally owned businesses, the locally owned health care, that's gone. So who replaces that? And that's the hard part. That's why we plug you know, young professional development, mentorship. But going back to what you say, that's where I talk about getting wealth off the sideline. Because even though I'm wealthy and I might live out on the lake, you know what? My kids do want a vibrant downtown. My grandchildren want a vibrant downtown. So I think we have to recapture that. In the book, The Coming Jobs War by Jim Clifton, the president of Gallup, he talks very tightly about you need some saintly investors if you're going to turn a community around. And these are people that probably can make more money investing their money somewhere else, but they want to invest it back in their local community. And the good news is it doesn't have to be just a statue. You know, the Switzer brothers here in town, Lamar Advertising. When I was up in Minnesota last, I saw Lamar billboards. Anyway, they've now bought a giant old building that was actually at one time owned by their great-grandfather and have revitalized it and put co-working space in there. But I don't think the Switzers are doing it to make a lot of money. They're doing it because they want to invest back in their community to keep talent here. So I think that's the, you brought it up a very good point. That's the void. So now that we don't have those local businesses, media, healthcare, what can replace it? I think what replaces it is the people that still live there that have money that can invest. Jamesville is very lucky. Some of the Parker family who have moved away are still very committed to it and will still invest in downtown um, Pensacola and the Rock County Historical Society. And I think the other point is realizing investment might not mean something philanthropy. It might actually mean buying a building, renovating a building. Um creating an entrepreneurship program for young entrepreneurs. It might be creating startups. So I think there's a different type of philanthropy today than just building something that has your name on it.
0: From the view of Pensacola from a place like Brainerd, Minnesota, especially in January and February when it's brutally cold up here, where you live seems like the land of milk and honey, right? It seems like this like beautiful, gorgeous place that all of us pine to be in yet you know, when I was there, the first time I was there, you and I walked around some neighborhoods that were very poor and where a lot of people were struggling. I was a little bit surprised by that. Not necessarily that you would have neighborhoods like that, but you you have quite a few. Pensacola has a, a lot of struggling areas. How important are those neighborhoods to the future of Pensacola? And, and I think deeper, How important are the people in those neighborhoods to the future of Pensacola? And what do you do about that?
1: I agree with you 100%. You know, and I used to travel the country. I used to tell people Escambia County is the poorest Florida county. Uh, The 17 largest counties in Florida were the poorest county. And people say, well, wait a minute. I've been to Pensacola. I, I didn't see that. I said, no, you drove on the interstate over Pensacola the Pensacola Beach. We strategically keep people from stopping. And we're one of the only cities that the visitor center was on the way out of town, not on the way in a town. So I think what you hit was the key question. And that's why creating those dollars is so important. So if what happens with poverty, and we have a lot of it here, we're doing a couple of things. Number one is you gotta get kids ready for kindergarten. And I know people might say, Quint, you wrote a book on revitalization. you are talking about kindergarten. 85% 85% of the brains develop by age three. Show me a city with a lot of poverty, and I'll show you a city that has kids not ready for kindergarten. Because if a child's not ready for kindergarten, the likelihood of graduating from high school drops. 60% of boys end up in jail, 70% of girls end up having a baby by 18. Now, to go back to your point, as you start building your community, you start creating that more tax dollars. Like I said, ours is up 25.9. That goes into various things, whether it's school, police, and fire. I think one of the key things that I push is something called Covenant for the Community. And we actually, right now, on the cusp of finally getting our government to approve it, we've done it privately. So in our building, our $52 million apartment complex downtown, we have a Covenant for the Community. And that means 70% of all labor dollars must go to people that are local. For us, it means live in Santa Rosa or Scambia County. When you do that, Chuck, you put a lot of pressure on general contractors to use local labor. Now, they're going to say to you, well, we can't find it. Well, then you say, well, you have to tell me how you've looked. But what they end up doing, Chuck, they end up creating programs to train people. They end up creating programs to bring people in. So I think those neighborhoods are vital, maybe not from a pure financial perspective, but from a value perspective. Because if you're not taking care of people that are vulnerable to live in neighborhoods that are tough, that face certain challenges, I don't think you're being a good value-driven community. So I think capturing them are, are very important. And that's why what we're doing right now, Chuck, since you've been here, is Civicon, which is a joint venture between Studer Community Institute and Pensacola News Journal, we're creating a community platform. So instead of waiting for elected officials to create the strategic direction, we're creating a community platform. So for example, we have a new mayor election coming. Do you know every mayor this week spoke out on creating bikes, more bike lanes, more this, more walkability. Um, we wanna know what's happening in the environment. So I think it's really creating what I call, which I think is pretty exciting, is the community creating community platform, which of course would be inclusive to those neighborhoods that are what we call in our pockets of poverty.
0: We walked around and looked at some of the investment opportunities in there. Remember that the place where we went out to eat? Yes. I think what was remarkable to me about that is it was such a fantastic place and it was in a neighborhood where you could see a lot of development potential, but maybe not the kind that like you say, the developer driving the interstate is going to pick up or the realtor taking to the flashy place is going to pick up. How much potential is there in neighborhoods like that?
1: I think there's a lot of potential. And it's interesting because I think it's also a lot of potential because at least for our community, Chuck, many of those are, you have a lot of vacant land. When you see a community that's sort of gone down the tubes, over the years, buildings have been torn down and vacant land. So, to give people a little history of what we're talking about, years ago, of course, before integration, most of the downtowns had a vibrant white downtown and a black downtown. Once integration came, many of the black downtowns struggled, and many of them are gone or certainly very limited now. That, where we were at, at one time, was the epic center of the black community. It's called Belmont de So Louis Armstrong played there. That had the first black radio station in the area there and so on. But when we looked at it, it was completely, as you know, that building you were in, when we bought that building, you couldn't go inside because the roof was down to the floor. But we, we bought it to show a commitment to the areas that might not get commitment, now we bought it and we did something very creative. We sort of learned this in Asheville, but we created a hybrid. We put the rent based on the revenue. So this attracted a, a minority chef who always wanted his own restaurant called Five Sisters. And it's done very well. And it's opened up probably a two thousand seven or eight type period. Well, the challenge is that's sort of an isolated island over there. Across the street was a old office building owned by a mortgage company. And this is where you have to be willing to get saintly investors. It might take a 5 or 6% return on investment versus a double-digit one. Now, Chuck, when you come back, you'll be amazed. That's totally full. And then all of a sudden, it sort of became almost cool to live in that area. So now we have 28 townhouses going in. We have 16 apartments going in. We have all these, what I would call, more affordable housing going in on the lots. And so, but it, you have to kickstart it. And it usually takes one or two things to kickstart it. And then you build around and sort of capture things. So you know why? People want to be as close to downtown as possible. So there's a lot. You'll be amazed at all the growth that's happened down there, even since you were here. But it starts with sort of that pebble in the pond. You know, how much water does a pebble impact in a pond? Everything. One pebble moves this water, this water, this water. And I think... In communities, we have to realize our development is more of a pebble and a pond strategy than a big boulder.
0: You asked me to come down and give a talk at Civicon. I, I did that and was able to be in the area a few weeks later and and did another little presentation that was, was very well attended, a lot of enthusiasm. If you were giving me advice, what would be the thing that uh, Strong Towns, the organization could do? to help Pensacola continue down this path. There's a lot of momentum and uh, a lot of good things happening. W- what are the kind of things you'd look for us to help out with?
1: Well, I think it's the same thing, you know, I'm trying to do now with the Student Community Institute. We're all in this thing together. You know, when I first started, I was in a hospital, Chuck, that did quite well. Then I went to another hospital that did quite well. And all of a sudden, people started asking me to come to their hospital and present. And I'm like you, I'd come and I'd present and, you know, you became a rock icon here. You know, you and Mick Jagger. Uh, and um, so, 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 but, but the reality is that started leaving me unfulfilled because while people would say, oh, Quint, great talk. We loved it. Oh yeah. We're going to follow up three, four months from now, nothing happens. And we, When I called Ray Kendrose from Urban Design to come to Pensacola, at first he said, no, He said, Quint, I've been there twice before. I'm not going to places that aren't going to do anything. So I get paid a few bucks and I enjoy the money. It's not worth it emotionally because that's not why I'm in this. So I think it's us all working together on what's the follow-up. Where can we visit? So, for example, Putman County, Florida, asked me to come there a couple months ago, and it went very well. Well, now they're coming in here in July to walk through Pensacola to learn. So I think what's really important is um, follow-up because we all want to do it. It's it's not the question of change and how. When I got to a hospital and I said, hey, let's create a place where physicians want to practice medicine, where nurses and other employees want to work, where patients get great care. I mean, there's no hospital administered in the country that said when i don't want to do that stuff i like frustrating doctors making my staff angry and who cares about <laughs> patients you know right. they all want it so we think because they want to they know how to and i think the question is how do you teach them the how so at Studor group before i sold it we created ways to scale our work because we found certain most all every organization needs a little hand holding so what do we go first how do we go it And that's why in here in Pensacola, we're trying to sort of create a lab for people so they can come down for no charge, look at it, see what we've done, what lessons we've learned, and so on. So if I was growing strong towns, I would really create ways to follow up with these communities to teach them how, because you get them all revved up, they're all excited. And then 90 days later, they might be doing a few things, but usually places need a little more than that. I hope you you know, take that in the right spirit, it's meant.
0: I, I certainly, and, and I tell you what, I'm going to be sharing your book with people. I, I do think that you kind of take the next step for me, which is, uh, okay, you want to do this? Here's all the stuff you got to think through. I I will admit this to you as a friend. When I first got this book, I was like, okay, I don't read planning books. I certainly don't read books like how to do things in a community, you know, I kind of been there and done that. And, uh, but Quint is a friend of mine and I, I'll, I'll read this book and it kind of sat on my shelf and sat on my shelf and Dottie gave me a call and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll get to it. I really like this book a lot and it filled in a lot of things for me and is very practical. I actually am going to get a bunch of copies and give them to, uh, some key people in this community that want to be change makers. I feel like it, it fills in a lot of gaps. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Um, and I understand, you know, my first book, riding Excellence, which did really well in healthcare, was a how-to book. But I'm like you, I got too quick to tr- First of all, Robert Davis, who's developed Seaside, which is quite famous, dropped me a note last week. And he read it. He said he loved it. Of course, Joe Minicozzi, who we both know, read it. And he said he loves it or, because it tells you how to. But I get you. Um, I run these small group roundtables, Chuck. And so... I got this lady says to me, why don't we all read a book? And I'm almost embarrassed because I'm sure she's going to recommend one of my books for everyone <laughs> yeah. to read. Yeah. So I'm trying to act like, oh, come on, come on. So she said, let's everybody read the book, E Myth Revisited. Okay. <laughs> now I'm wondering, well, wait a minute, what about my book for crying out loud? <laughs> so we all so we all agreed to read this book, E Myth Revisited. Okay. We're getting together in ninety days. It's 88th day, and I have not read this book. I've not even bought this book because I'm still a little hurt that they're not reading my book. So then I download the book, and I'm going to read it and find fault with it, you know, not to like it. I start reading this book. I have probably recommended E-Myth Revisited more than anybody in the United States of America. (laughs) I've understood those feelings and sometimes, and you know, the great news about the book too is every single dollar that we get from that book goes to early brain development. Not one bit goes into my pocket. Not that that's wrong, but I really want the book to have two things. I want to make better communities, but I also want to help continue the research into early brain development and how children learn. So, on get to hopefully it's a double win for, for people when they read it, they like the book and they've actually helped children learn.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate your patience. I want to ask you one final question and that is about the blue Wahoos. It it looks like you guys started out. zero and two and now have won seven in a row and are at the top of the division things going well there.
1: Well, and for people that aren't aware, that's a minor league baseball team that I own with Bubba Watson and Derek Brooks. Um, You know what? I don't even look at the record because we don't control that. The major league baseball team does just like the Chattanooga team that the twins have. We look at fan experience. And the neat thing for us is we measure fan experience after every game. And um, we lead all of minor league baseball in fan experience. And that's really neat. And in fact, in my book too, for the addendum, I have actually Chuck a copy of the covenant for the community that they can utilize i have a dashboard that we can utilize and we use a dashboard at the at the wahoo so we're excited about the wahoo's i'm excited to see the cincinnati reds with jim riggleman as the manager who's a class guy doing better but we win or lose not on the field we win or lose in the stands
0: yeah well i was really impressed with the staff and just how they uh They were really focused on, even at the CivicCon thing, making sure that people got in and had a good time and and got to their seats and felt comfortable. So yeah, very impressive.
1: Well, you helped us a lot. You know, when you do something like this, you take a risk. And certainly the Pensacola News Journal was key. That's that local media I talked about was so vital. But our first one, and, and you know, gosh, if our first one, the speaker's not good, the message doesn't resonate, you're probably dead in the water. I mean, we had, as you know, over 400 people come to hear you speak. I think over 4,000 people watched you on live stream. And you've set the tone, set the tone for this entire entire series. So we're deeply indebted. And for your listeners, they can go to PNJ slash Civicon and they can watch your live stream as well as a whole bunch of other people we've had come in, which we believe has made a huge difference. And, you know, I think that's the other thing we miss is um, you have to really work on on educating the community because once they understand it, I mean, you're, you're being a County commissioner meeting now and they're talking about infill instead of let's sprawl out a little bit. So you've changed our community for the better.
0: Well, that's very kind of you and I appreciate you taking the time and I, I look forward to uh, you and I and maybe Joe getting together and chatting sometime soon. I, I think that would be a wonderful collaboration.
1: I think we can do some neat things as you and I talked about, I think down the road, um, having some series where people can come in and hear us because I think we all balance each other out and complement each other very well. I think some articles that, you know, we can put on together where you have a reach outreach. Um, you know, Dottie's been really good at getting me in outreach. Um, I just got invited by the Waltons to come to their event in um, October that they're putting on, which is going to be a big learning. And hopefully I can carry your message, our, our, my message, and Joe's message. And Hopefully we can do some great, great things together where we bet a lot of communities can benefit and we can make all our lives more rewarding by making the impact we
0: want to make. I would love that. Thank you, Quint, for all you do. And it's so nice to talk to you. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. The book is Building a Vibrant Community, How Citizen-Powered Change is Reshaping America. That's Quint Studer. Go get the book. It's really good and it will help you out. uh, If you're looking to make change in your place, uh, you're going to benefit a lot from this. Thanks everybody for listening and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go on bankrupt.
1: Bill, 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 Bill. That's
0: the start. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions.
1: Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.
0: Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through
1: I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.